As happy as a butter clam When tides are high I sing A grateful ode to Puget Sound The land of everything I love it from Tulalip To Puyallup, Squim and Pisht And to the Dosey Wallops Where so many times I fished From Brennan to the Boca Chile, From Lummi to La Push and from the lordly Salduck to lovely Duckabush. From Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine. The climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for listening to episode 21 Benjamin F. Kendall, Part 2. If you missed episode 20, then I recommend that you pause this episode and go listen to it. Previously, I had finished the broadcast by discussing how Benjamin F. Kendall had been fired from his position as Superintendent of Indian Affairs for the Territory of Washington. This has been his previous position for only a couple of months. As a result of his ordeal, Benjamin Kendall was extremely resentful, and thinking that he had been humiliated through the columns of the Washington Standard, Kendall was resolved to utilize a similar medium to annoy his former adversaries. He opted to work for the Puget Sound Herald, and his editorials in the Stillicum newspaper became increasingly violent as a result of his easiness of composition, terseness, and power of emotion, according to the article. On the 17th of July, 1862, he launched a verbal salvo at Anson Henry. The question, do we have a swindler in our midst, is addressed. The article was initially published in the Puget Sound Herald and then in the Olympia Overland Press the following week. Kendall accused Henry of being able to do anything and everything to suit the occasion, even stealing public cash from the government. Henry, on the other hand, believing that the editorial had truly been penned by A.M. Poe, editor of the Overland Press, set out in quest of the editor. Poe was quietly smoking a cigarette when he found him in Mr. Sylvester's store. With no pomp and circumstance, Henry struck Poe with his cane, with Poe returning the blows with a relatively light walking cane. Despite Sylvester's efforts to keep them apart, Henry took his bowie knife and brandished it with loud words of defiance. Poe refused to take Henry's threat seriously and the conflict came to a peaceful conclusion without any bloodshed. The almost comical nature of the struggle was significant for two reasons. First, it demonstrated that what had previously been a battle of words was swiftly going into the realm of physical violence. It was almost too late to save the situation and the beginning of the end came early in August when Kendall, acting as Poe's attorney, took over management of the Overland Press while Poe was in California recovering from his declining state of health. Kendall's political opponents suffered a double blow as a result of this. It wasn't just that Kendall suddenly owned his own newspaper, he also assumed control of the public printing contract, which had been sought by Murphy of the Standard as a political plum. According to an article published in the Portland, Oregonian newspaper in September of 1862, the following will happen soon after. In this way, Mr. Kendall will be able to fully reveal all of the petty shenanigan games that have been going on among certain political parties over there, 
Dr. Henry and Kendall are expected to have a physical altercation, assuming Kendall has the fortitude to survive the encounter. This, on the other hand, is seen as highly unlikely. Kendall, on the other hand, had the pluck, raising his sights to include not just Anson Henry, but also Elwood Evans, William Wallace, and Frank Clark, who was at that time the Democratic representative for Pierce County in the territorial legislature. He went so far as to criticize certain parts of the clergy. This is what the Overland Press had to say about the territory on the 29th of September, 1862. This territory displays in the present corps of officials a spectacle not unworthy of the humor of a juvenile or the pencil of a Hogarth. Even those in positions of authority within the church are unable to help themselves because they believe that all communications must be conducted through sloppy grammar, diluted weak logic, and poor orthography. The entire situation is predicted on the pathological ambition of every official out here to be the mouthpiece for the people and to elevate himself to the position of delegate or possibly senator of the expecting state. The populace will, in due course, open their eyes to itinerant demagogues and preachers who engage in poker games. Despite the fact that Kendall was cautious not to name names in his type of editorial, there was enough truth in it to scare and offend those who were the target of it. During this time, he was neither editing his paper or providing legal assistance to the Puget Sound Agricultural Company. He was preoccupied with other personal concerns. He was a somewhat successful businessman who was also attractive and exceptionally handsome. He had few close acquaintances, particularly those who shared his interest in academic activities. He also did not have a wife or any other likely chances for marriage. He was not alone in this, as there were at least 2,000 other bachelors in the territory at the time. Furthermore, a man with Kendall's particular background and temperament had a desperate need for a confidant to whom he could turn. No one realized the importance of this more than Kendall himself who traveled north to Victoria in early October of 1862 with the intention of selecting a wife from among the late arrivals there, according to an edition of the Puget Sound Herald. Kendall was not the only one who realized the importance of this. We can only speculate about what could have happened had he been successful in finding a bride, but we can look back and see what transpired in part as a result of his failure. His anguish and frustration were channeled into the editorials of the Overland Press upon his return to Olympia, where he was much more despondent than before. It was attempted to force George Roberts, a farmer and agent for the Puget Sound Agricultural Company, off the Cowlitz Farms two weeks later on the night of October 24th. Despite the fact that Roberts was not attacked, his barn and numerous other structures were set on fire and destroyed. According to Kendall, a close friend of Roberts, Horace Howe, a 70-year-old farmer who had been working on the Cowlitz River for numerous years, was the one who set the fire to the cabin. Instead of filing a lawsuit against Howe, Kendall utilized the editorial columns of his newspaper to describe the incident and state his conclusion. According to popular belief, Horace Howe is the elderly gray-bearded criminal who sought to carry out this right-handed diabolical crime in the first place. In the meantime, this robbery veteran continues his heinous task. We have faith in the miserable may meet his desolation, the gallows, at some point in his life. Kendall had unknowingly provided his adversaries with a much-needed weapon. It didn't take very long for Howe to learn that he had a large number of friends and legal advisors, 
all of whom were even more outraged than he was by Kendall's editorial. He made his public debut in Olympia a month later. He had passed Kendall several times on the street, but it took him a whole week to make up his mind about him. The fact that he had to wait more than a month to travel to Olympia appears to support Kendall's conclusion that Howe was provoked into attacking him, contrary to his own plans by individuals in Olympia who were a little apprehensive about taking up the job for themselves. It was said in Olympia that groups could have a good time if they congregated in front of Aunt Becky's Pacific Restaurant on Saturday morning, December 20th, just before 9 o'clock. At approximately 9 o'clock in the morning, Kendall emerged from the restaurant and stopped to chat with a Mr. Fletcher about the public printing contract that Henry and Evans were trying to wrest from the Overland Press for the standard newspaper during the 10th Legislative Assembly session. When Howe came around the corner of 3rd and Main Streets, he didn't say anything. Instead, he walked over to where the two men were chatting and brought his own ox switch down on Kendall's shoulders without saying a word. After months of battling public opinion and Confederate troops, the man who had endeared so much suddenly revealed a completely new side to his enigmatic personality. On the 8th of January, 1863, the Puget Sound Herald reported that Kendall immediately stepped back, drew a revolver, and shot on Howe, the ball having an impact on the left side. Kendall began running towards the direction of his office, running sideways but at a good pace and firing at Howe the entire time. Howe maintained his pursuit, running right into the face and eyes of Kendall's pistol until the pistol's ammunition was completely depleted, at which point Kendall turned around and bolted, leaving Howe in complete command of the field with the little hazel ox gad. As reported in the Overland Press edition published on the 22nd of December, 1862, Kendall later said that the ox gad was a cudgel of significant size. He also asserted that he shot Howe in self-defense after the incident. If there had not been such a significant age disparity between them, and if Howe had not been gravely injured, the incident would almost uncertainly have gone unnoticed. Nonetheless, the sight of a 70-year-old man following a young opponent proved too much for the onlookers to bear. In order to increase the level of excitement, Kendall's adversaries worked tirelessly to create further controversy. Some believed that Kendall's best course of action would be to leave as soon as possible. A surprising source of assistance came from Aunt Becky's dining room where two members of the state senate, Senators J.D. Bagley and M.S. Griswold, were enjoying a leisurely lunch and discussing the fracas. Bagley was of the opinion that Kendall performed admirably, exactly as any other man would have done in the same situation under similar conditions. Kendall should be held accountable, and Griswold urged that a vigilance committee should be formed to deal with the situation. In this manner, one word led to another until both were sufficiently warmed up and from words, they turned to blows. However, before the first round had concluded, Aunt Becky, who, by the way, was adamantly opposed to any such procedures taking place in her dining room, took advantage of the opportunity to pause hostilities by wrapping her arms around Mr. Griswold and suspending him about knee-high. Becky's hold, according to Griswold, reminded him of a blacksmith's vice from the olden days. Now keep in mind that Aunt Becky, whose true name was Rebecca Howard, was a former slave who rose to prominence as the proprietor of the Pacific Restaurant and amassed quite a substantial wealth. 
Rebecca is also well known for having utilized a portion of her money to educate and maintain the orphaned daughter of her former master and owner. The news of the tremendous battle quickly circulated across Olympia, and when it was announced that Howe would recover, the throng dispersed in disbelief. If Kendall's opponents were hoping that he would leave town, or at the very least, refrain from writing his nasty and abusive editorials, they were in for quite a surprise that Monday morning. Having given a detailed account of the episode, Kendall went on to clarify his editorial philosophy and respond to Henry, whom he apparently believed was responsible for Howe's attack. The following is a partial translation of the editorial. Henry, in his page, The Washington Standard, writes that we should refrain from commenting. To the full extent of his lying ability, he is perfectly free to remark on this case, prejudice, and influence the public's perception of it. It was with a genuine conviction of right that we acted, regretting the necessity of causing hurt to anyone, whether old or young, enemy or friend, we will accept no responsibility by refusing to speak our opinions. Kendall had made his point rather well in his statement. He intended to remain in Olympia. He intended to keep his newspaper in print indefinitely. For this reason, he became increasingly hazardous to his political opponents as he could not be driven from Olympia by fear or shame, and as he stood a great chance of securing the public printing contract and so retaining the Overland Press. The appearance of Horace Howe Jr. at his father's bedside on the 22nd of December proved to be a breakthrough in the difficult task of muting Kendall. Whoever persuaded Howe to attack Kendall now convinced his son that it was necessary to compel Kendall to issue a comprehensive retraction of his allegation that Howe had set fire to the Puget Sound Agricultural Company's offices and structures. Howe Jr. was a better farmer than a writer and was told that Clark would write the statement, which he should then ask Kendall to publish on his behalf. Was Kendall aware of how far the relationship had progressed? He appeared to have done so, and, what's more, he appeared to have invited extra difficulty. He realized that the end of the play was approaching when he took a realistic look at his own existence. Kendall's opinion was published on the 29th of December, 1862. Friends turn out to be enemies. After receiving our gifts, the recipients grow ungrateful. Our faith has been betrayed. Cold, self-centered suspicion in the existence of what we formerly considered as the most sacred and holy of human ties is rapidly replacing the free, generous confidence of youth. It is a distasteful cliché that we should always be distrustful of our fellow humans. Act as we see fit, discharge our responsibilities properly or poorly, whether we are honest or dishonorable, kind or mean, we must all come to the same conclusion at the end of the play. Kendall's last prophetic editorial was published in this issue. He happened to run upon Howe Jr. on the street a short time later, on New Year's Day in 1863. Howe informed Kendall that he was writing an article that would exonerate his father of arson accusations, and he asked Kendall if he would be willing to publish the story in the next edition of the Overland Press. Kendall was noncommittal, but suggested that he bring it to his office for consideration. A week later, on the 7th of January, 1863, a Wednesday, Howe dropped by the newspaper office at an ungodly hour to pick up some copies of the New York Herald. Kendall was having a conversation with his clerk, Mr. Chittenden, as well as a number of other unidentifiable persons. Howe stated that he would return to visit Kendall alone, indicating that he wished to do so. 
He visited a second time, but it wasn't until his third visit around noon that the office was completely empty save for Chittenden and Kendall. Clearly uncomfortable, Howe pushed past the clerk and demanded to speak with Kendall in private in the back room. Kendall agreed. He got up from his chair and escorted him into the back office. The door was locked and then bolted, and Kendall invited Howe Jr. to take a seat. Mr. Chittenden apparently overheard the conversation, and he estimated that between six and eight minutes were spent in hush talk, of which he understood only a little. The sound of a pistol was heard, followed by a few seconds of silence. When the door opened, Howe bolted out of the room, yanking the door open behind him. Meanwhile, Kendall walked to the door of his office and yanked it open, exclaiming that he had been shot. He then gripped the mantel shelf and reeled forward, collapsing onto the fireplace underneath it. According to later reports, Kendall was killed by the ball from a Derringer pistol, which was just a trifle smaller in size than the Colonel's Navy revolver, according to an inquest. The ball had become trapped in his chest cavity. Kendall made no indication that he was armed, and he was unable to communicate during the 30 minutes before he died other than to say, I'm shot. Kendall died as a result of his injuries. Howe screamed that he had killed Kendall in self-defense, according to the teenage clerk who testified at the preliminary hearing. Howe had fled from the crime scene and straight to jail, possibly having practiced his assassination routine. He did not make any attempt to flee. Either he was confident that his star would be approved, or, as is more likely, he understood that he had a large number of politically active fans. With the exception of the repeated declaration, I shot him in self-defense, Howe declined to provide any other comment. A preliminary examination was held at the courthouse on Saturday, the 10th of January, three days following Kendall's death, according to court records. Defending the territory in the case was Judge William Strong, a former Associate Justice of the Territorial Supreme Court, and Judge Edward Lander, who both served on the Territorial Supreme Court and had worked closely with Kendall. Howe's attorneys, Frank Clark and Judge O.B. McFadden, were retained. Surprisingly, Clark informed the court that he was willing to have Howe remanded to the custody of the sheriff where he would remain until his trial for first-degree murder was scheduled for the next session of the Second District Court of Appeals. He then moved that the hearing be waived, stating that it was unnecessary because it was for the advantage of the accused and that Howe was prepared to stand trial and that there was no reason to continue. When Judge Strong protested and the court supported his objection, Clark stated that he did not want any additional time to prepare his case and requested that the case be adjourned until the following Monday. In the same way, his request was turned down. Kendall's clerk, Mr. Chittenden, gave brief testimony on the stand, and after that, Judge Strong asked that Clark be called to the witness stand. He raised an objection but was overruled once more. During the subsequent examination, Judge Strong presented Clark the notice Howe had requested Kendall to post shortly prior to the murder, which Clark acknowledged. Mr. Clark, may I ask you a question, said Judge Strong. Please read this paper and respond to my query. Is this the first time you've come across this newspaper? I'm not going to testify that I did it, Clark responded. In spite of numerous rephrasings of the question, Judge Strong was never able to obtain an unequivocal response from Clark other than, I mean exactly what I say and do not want the court to put language in my mouth. The two Derringers that Howe was carrying, one of which he used to shoot Kendall, were discovered and destroyed by police. Clark was asked if he could identify them and he stated that he was unable to do so throughout his testimony. 
When asked if he had a pair of pistols similar to those used by Howe, Clark responded by saying that he did. When he was asked where they were, he declined to provide an answer. Regardless of who provided Howe with the pistols, Clark had a great alibi for his conduct in the hours leading up to the murder and he knew it. He was in attendance at the daily session of the 10th legislature in his capacity as a Democratic legislator for Pierce and Suwamish counties. No evidence points to Anson Henry being present on the morning of Howe's murder, but he appears to be equally responsible for supplying the weapons to Howe and his accomplices. In reality, there was some speculation that Clark had declined to answer Judge Strong's questions during the inquiry in order to protect the Surveyor General's reputation. Following the conclusion of the examination, the three most widely read newspapers in the territory published different accounts of Clark's deposition. The Washington Standard avoided making any comments other than to say, due to the overwhelming volume of our columns, we are unable to publish the proof. Judge Edward Lander directed the Overland Press, which noted in its 12th of January 1863 edition that the refusal of the witness to answer questions gives rise to many unpleasant surmises in reference to Mr. Clark's association with this sorrowful occurrence. Frank Clark was defended by the Puget Sound Herald of Stillicum, which published an editorial on the 22nd of January stating that the testimony is an unjustifiable attack upon the character of Frank Clark. There is a good chance that the prosecution was kind enough not to arouse any further public indignation, said the prosecutor. As an aside, I'd like to point out that Charles Prosh, the editor of the Puget Sound Herald, was, paradoxically, just as good of a friend to Kendall as he was to Clark, yet it appears that Prosh believed Clark had less to do with the murder than Henry did. Following the hearing, Clark wrote a letter to the Overland Press in which he stated, I desire to be clearly understood that... Before the completion of the affair, I shall prove to the satisfaction of both friend and enemy that whatever insinuations that may have been made against me were unmerited. Clark, on the other hand, and if he did exonerate himself, it was not in the pages of the newspapers of Washington Territory. As a result of his first and last letter to the Overland Press, his name was no longer associated with the investigation. Thurston County's grand jury convened on Monday, the 23rd of March, 1863, with the purpose of investigating a murder. Howe was indicted for manslaughter without malice, but in the heat of battle. The name of Howe's attorney was not mentioned in the newspaper reports of the proceedings, although it appears that he was not Clark. Judge William Strong, on the other hand, continued to represent the territory in the case. Judge Strong requested that a nola prosequi be issued, stating that he did not believe he could convict the prisoner of manslaughter since the evidence was insufficient. Howe would have been freed as a result of this, but he would still have been charged with manslaughter. He was clearly confident in his case, and so the young farmer's anonymous counsel insisted on going to trial before a jury of his peers. He was overturned, and the case was put on hold until additional evidence could be presented. According to the Salem, Oregon statesman of the 30th of March, Howe was admitted to bail in the sum of $3,000. The matter was adjourned to the next scheduled session of court. Howe left Olympia on the 24th of March for his home near the Cowlitz Farms, where he was greeted by the congratulations of his friends and family upon his arrival. Once again, the court prolonged the case due to a lack of evidence, this time until May of 1864 when the issue was finally resolved. 
Despite the fact that Howe was no longer in immediate danger from the courts, he had not been completely forgotten. In an article published a few days before Howe's release from prison, the Overland Press threatened to stoke up Rip Van Winkles in this country with the implication that Howe might be involved in the stirring. Nothing came of the threat, but the Overland Press did continue to harass the men who had played a role in Howe's protection as late as the 27th of July, 1863. It stated... In the 3rd District Court the other day, a man was fined $400 and imprisoned for 20 days for striking another man on the sconce. What a wretched devil. He didn't know how to appeal to the refined sympathies of the grand jury, which he didn't understand. He should have broken into the victim's private quarters and shot him in the heart with a derringer, as opposed to a shotgun. That's the best way to present a compelling argument in some of Washington's courts. Approximately one month later... Howe vanished without a trace. Some of his neighbors said that he had relocated to California, while others implied that he had died in a mysterious accident. It was also rumored that he committed himself or drowned by accident, although no evidence to support these assertions has ever been presented. The news of Howe's death reached Olympia in May of 1864, and the case was immediately dismissed from the court's docket. Kendall's assassination had become a riddle within an enigma, and the investigation was still ongoing. The answers to several of the questions would never be provided. In light of the fact that Howe had acknowledged to killing Kendall and the grand jury had returned an indictment for manslaughter, why did Judge Strong enter a nola prosequi? Who was it that provided bail bond money to the destitute Howe? Why was it that the prosecution was never able to locate the necessary witnesses? Was Howe actually drowned by accident, or was he, too, murdered by those who feared what he might say if he were ever convicted of a crime against them? Is it true that Howe traveled to California? Was the narrative of his death a fabrication for the sake of it all? We will never know the answers to these questions, and as a result, it will always be an mystery to the people of Washington. The four key characters in this dramatic episode made the decision to remain completely silent. Kendall's murder and Howe's disappearance appear to have raised a slew of questions, and it appears that any one of them may have provided an answer. During the summer of 1865, Anson Henry was 64 years old and still serving as the Surveyor General of Washington Territory when he perished on the ill-fated steamboat The Brother Jonathan. Elwood Evans went on to win more political successes, and eight years before his death in 1890, he gave a brief account of Kendall's political career to historian Hubert Howe Bancroft, which was published in 1890. The fact that he may have played a role in Kendall's murder and subsequent cover-up was not mentioned to Bancroft or in his letters, despite his otherwise communicative demeanor. John Miller Murphy established a new record for the length of time a newspaper was published. In 1910, the 50th anniversary of the publication of his Washington Standard, Murphy was as uninformative about the case as Henry and Evans were prior. Frank Clark was a successful criminal defense attorney, but he was unsuccessful in his attempt to be elected to the United States Congress in 1867. A paralytic attack took his life on the 8th of January in the year 1883. Because of the Kendall affair, he never regained his former prominence. Moreover, in his book, Washington West of the Cascades, published in 1917, historian Herbert Hunt described him as a man whose actions did not always conform to the highest ideas of moral philosophy. 
As noted in his 1905 Pioneer Reminiscences of Puget Sound, Ezra Meeker held a similar view of Clark, stating, Clark had become an unscrupulous figure who had become a terror to law-abiding citizens while serving as a protector of criminals. Ezra went on to remark of Clark, his rule was that all means were justified provided they served the purpose of accomplishing an aim. The editor of the Puget Sound Herald, Charles Prosh, recognized an element of Kendall's character in the paper's April 2nd edition that he believed rendered his murder likely. If a man is determined to make a martyr of himself, righteously or otherwise, he can easily be accommodated, and especially in the business of publishing a newspaper. Kendall had become a martyr for the politics and politicians of the frontier Washington Territory, whether he did it on purpose or not. Although Prosh's argument is not conclusive, it is as satisfactory as any other that has been submitted. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a five-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Sources for this episode include HistoryLink.org, The History of Washington, Idaho, and Montana by Bancroft, The Overland Press, the Washington Standard, JSTOR.org, the Puget Sound Herald, the Washington Secretary of State's website, the Washington State Historical Society, and the Olympia Historical Society. Thank you for listening to Episode 21, Benjamin F. Kendall, Part 2. Episode 22 will be released next week. A special thank you goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. If you have any questions about the show, please contact History of the Evergreen State Pod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State Podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. Stay safe out there, everyone. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queens, and on the Hull. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Chimicum and Stillicum, where spouts the gooey duck. The singing Stillaguamish and the swirling Skookum Chuck. And Moclips and Copalis. Where the razor clams abound A little bit of heaven Is a shack on Puget Sound A little bit of heaven Is a shack on Puget Sound